This is The Drive Podcast with Josh Graham. Welcome to the internet, my friend. How can I help you? Check out The Drive weekday afternoons at 3 on WSJS Sports. On a Monday drive, WSJS, News Talk Sports for the Triad. And well, 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 what have we here? Another year, another Final Four where the ACC is still playing while the SEC and the Big Ten are at home watching. Here's to hoping Jim Phillips has a sense of humor that he channels Tar Heel greats from a few decades ago. Going to Houston and holding up a sign courtside a cardboard sign that simply reads where's Purdue and where's Alabama I have tremendous respect for Commissioner Phillips but speaking of Commissioner Jim Phillips even though it came a month too late or you could even argue a year too late it would seem he's had it with the perception of ACC basketball he's had it getting only five teams in the last two years and he wants to do something about it He told ESPN's Andrea Adelson, a guest on today's show, that it's time to be more aggressive. It's time to be public with their approach. We're not just going to operate in silence behind the scenes. Not going to do the little Wayne quote. Thank you, Commissioner Phillips. The ACC is not getting the respect they deserve from the selection committee, and it is your job to push back on them to represent your constituents, to represent the basketball coaches and the ADs and these schools. The SEC and the Big Ten, they got a quarter of the bids this year, and they got a quarter of the bids last year. That's 32 bids over the last two seasons. And what came from it? One Elite Eight team, no Final Four teams. The ACC turned less than a third of those bids. 10 over the last two seasons into four elite eights and three final four teams. Now that Miami won yesterday, there is value to doing this publicly. There's value in reminding people that the ACC, its schools have won four national championships since the last time an SEC or a big 10 school won it 23 years since the last time the big 10 cut down nets. There's value in saying that we deserve more respect. Just ask Rank Sankey, who last year, while saying Texas A&M should have gotten in, he said the fact that they didn't is justification that they should expand the tournament to 90. Start to have that conversation. Greg Sankey, pretty forceful there. And it had the effect of riding refs. Why do coaches do that in hopes that they'll get the next call? And a year later, the SEC got more teams into the field. Mississippi State gets in in the final four in. While left on the first four outline, two ACC teams, Clemson and North Carolina. you got to campaign. If you expect to win, you've got to campaign. We talked about it with Sam Hartman last year. Dave Clawson asked, Why isn't this guy getting Heisman consideration? Well, because you're not letting him talk to the media or he's not wanting to do that. It'd be like a politician who had the best policies but not campaigning. 
that's a losing candidate. And it helps you in basketball too. Apply some pressure on the committee so that a year from now, when they're making those final decisions, they're wondering whether or not they want to have an egg on face for the third consecutive year. And then Jim Phillips has a reputation he wants to uphold. And right now, in basketball circles, he has the reputation of somebody that is chasing the football money and forgetting about what the league was built on, and that's basketball. I don't know if that's true how he exactly feels. It's something we brought up to him when we had a one-on-one chat in hey, Greensboro. Day, Jeff. It's something we brought up, and he said he didn't like that characterization, that it's not true. When he said in his first press conference, we want to be a conference that's football 24-7 and 365, he was only talking about what drives the sport economically. We all get how the bills are paid, but how much football does the Big East Conference play? You know, And they got UConn to the Final Four, and Creighton's there too. They seem to be doing just fine. That's a league that puts all their focus on basketball. And Jim Phillips has the reputation among basketball coaches as a guy who hasn't cared enough about basketball. And he can refute some of that. He can diffuse some of that by talking more to the coaches like he plans to do, by talking to the ADs, and by talking publicly about what his conference deserves in basketball. And Phillips deserves credit for this. I can say that it's late, sure, And now he's saying many of the things we said he should have been saying a month ago. We understand that. But great leaders are not stubborn. They recognize in hindsight hindsight when mistakes are made. I think about him with the issue of COVID at the 2021 tournament right after he took over. And Virginia and Duke, they're being knocked out due to COVID. There's some confusion of how exactly the contact tracing worked. And a lot of confusion at the time in Greensboro. And he's didn't speak then. He said in the summer, that was a mistake. I could have added some clarity during that time. And I appreciated that from him. And I appreciate this from him now. He deserves credit for recognizing the mistake and not dying on the hill, not becoming more entrenched. He's changing course. And if he really does care about basketball, he strikes me as a commissioner who'd be willing to fight about what he cares about and represent the ACC the way that he represented the football coaches and doing something unpopular nationally and being the guy who was seen to kill the 12-team playoff for four months or for six months until UCLA and USC forced his hand with the jump to the Big Ten last summer. He was unpopular as the guy who helped Nick's playoff expansion in January of 2022, 14 months ago. But he did it on behalf of his coaches. He did it on behalf of his ADs. He didn't mind being unpopular. He wanted to do what was best by his coaches, his conference, and I hope he does the same for basketball here. He's finally going on the offensive. On Twitter, at WSJS Radio, if you want in, 336-777-1600 is the phone number if you'd like to chime in that way. WSJS Radio is also where we're streaming video in addition to YouTube and on Twitch. Will Dalton is the executive producer of this show, clearly tickled at Jim Phillips finally Coming around here, you had to enjoy seeing that over the weekend. I have tremendous respect for Commissioner Phillips. I did. Uh, I thought of you as soon as I saw it. Um, and it just is funny because I, I opened the story and I read it, a good portion of it. And it's just like, this sounds awfully familiar. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you don't say. 
Getting to the actual basketball, though. Our final four is officially set. And for all the talk of how crazy and unprecedented this tournament has been. And yeah, there is some thing. There are some things we haven't seen before. No number one seeds to the Elite Eight, for example. We actually have seen this movie in terms of the final four, though. It looks like this is the 2011 final four all over again, because that's the last time we had two mid-majors to make it to the final weekend of the season. And in that tournament as well, both those mid-majors were on the same side of the bracket. If you're a basketball hardcore, you already know where I'm headed. Talking about VCU playing Butler, Shaka Smart facing Brad Stevens. Butler ended up winning that game, getting to the national championship game. Now we have Dustin May's Florida Atlantic Owls facing San Diego State in Houston. And I'm excited to watch that game. I know some aren't, but I love basketball. And I think this is going to be interesting, just like watching VCU and Butler was a dozen years ago. Meanwhile, who's the high seed going into that final four? Going into this final four as well? The UConn Huskies. Now, that was Kimball Walker in 2011, the eventual national champions. There is no Kimball Walker on this Dan Hurley coach team, but they are just crushing teams. Crushing Gonzaga by 20-plus. Arkansas by 20-plus. Iona by 20-plus. Double digits against St. Mary's. And that's a nice coincidence between those two Final Fours as well. And, oh yeah, where was that Final Four in 2011 held? The same exact building as this week's. NRG Stadium in Houston. But here's the hoping that we get a better national championship this time around than we did 12 years ago. Because in basketball circles, the way that the 2011 Final Four is remembered is by having the worst national championship game of all time. That was UConn and Butler. And the final score was 53-41. to 41. It was the lowest scoring national championship since 1949, decades before the shot clock, decades before some of these things to open up scoring were allowed. 53 to 41 was the title game. Let's hope that's going to be different now that we got the Canes there, UConn, and the two mid-majors of FAU and San Diego State. You can listen to the Final Four this weekend and a week from the night, the national championship game on WSJS. Check this out. We're on at five. The perfect blend of sports and pop culture happens this evening at six with The Rich Eisen Show. Okay, let's get this show running. Now back to The Drive with Josh Graham. I just think we got comfortable and cocky that we had our guys, our main core guys returning. And we just thought it was going to happen. Comfortable and cocky, that's the way Vince Carter described the North Carolina Tar Heels of this past season. On his podcast, he welcomed fellow Carolina great Antoine Jameson in to talk about a myriad of different subjects. They certainly did get into the NBA, but they started by sharing their thoughts of this disappointing Carolina season and all throughout the year. We suspected contentment was at the root of the demise for Carolina. Hearing these legends tell stories from inside the walls, from inside the Carolina family, it just affirmed that notion. 
The Final Four last year did not motivate these Tar Heels. It softened them in the offseason. You saw in all those videos when they announced they were coming back, they said, we feel like there's unfinished business. We've got a bad taste in our mouths by what happened against Kansas in the national title game, and nobody really bought it because nobody, the players included, expected for them to get to that point. They didn't win the national title, but they viewed what they did as a success, not a bad taste in their mouth, as a success beating Coach K in his final game at Cameron and beating him in the Final Four, extinguishing his career. And I'm not knocking it. That's understandably a success. But don't try to sell us that you have a bad taste in your mouth when clearly you seem pretty satisfied by what you did. So much so that Adam Lucas is putting out a book talking about that tournament run. And what happened in the offseason? They just expected it to happen again. They were entitled. Oh, we're going to be the preseason number one team. We got everybody back. We'll get back to the Final Four. We'll just be able to turn on that switch like we did a year ago. And they did the bare minimum during the summer, it seems like, according to Antoine Jameson. Not according to Josh Graham. According to Antoine Jameson, who said this on the Vince Carter podcast about the time he went to play pickup with the Heels last summer. One thing, especially in my profession, what I see now is the feel for the game is not there. Imagine all the open runs that we had. Vince, I went there the first day they was able to, to uh, practice or just uh, go up play, just oh, play, play, pick up. Pick up. So they played that day, and I said, well, I'll see you guys tomorrow. Y'all going to play again tomorrow, right? They were like, nah, we scheduled to play next week. I was like, huh? So for us, we got a basketball scholarship to go to the University of North Carolina. But Vince, we play every single day. Everybody can work out. Everybody can do between the legs. Everybody can do all this other stuff. But the feel for the game, the chemistry, the competitiveness is kind of like taking a step back, I think. That's pretty damning. And it seems the reaction to that quote is to blame Hubert Davis because you're the head coach and fans are always going to blame the coach before they blame the players. I understand that. But Hubert has no control over when the players play pickup upon their arrival on campus. The NCAA is pretty stringent on what coaches can mandate the players do. It's up to the players how often they want to play beyond that. So when Antoine is talking about, hey, we're going to play tomorrow, right? It isn't the players responding, no, coach is having us scheduled to play next week. No, that's the players who decided that. They were the ones doing the bare minimum. And NIL, just blanketly blaming NIL for your problems in college sports is lazy to me. It's become a punching bag the same way that blaming millennials or Gen Z or Zoomers, whatever we're calling them, has become just so popular nowadays. And it always happens with every generation. The older generation take, oh, it's these kids these days. And they become the punching bag. Why is something wrong in society? Let's blame the Zoomers. Let's blame Gen Z. Let's just do that. You become an easy punching bag because it's different. It's new. They have different ideas than you do. Since NIL's new, oh, let's just blame that. 
Antoine Jameson, I don't think is doing that. I don't think he's doing the lazy thing that I felt James Michael McAdoo did after the first Duke game when he was on Twitter saying, oh, I hope we save some of that NIL money, right? I felt that was a lazy shot. That's not what I felt Antoine was doing here in this clip. He's speaking to something that's a little bit broader in basketball and said, while NIL isn't the primary issue, it certainly isn't helping. After you get done with practice, you got to go and shoot a Dunkin' Donuts commercial. After I get done with practice, I'm going to shoot this car dealership commercial. And and I get it. Like I truly believe that players deserve to get paid for their name and likeness. And you know how that Duke-Carolina game, I remember the game at Duke, and I remember the ball just rolling on the floor. And I'm just like, nobody's diving for loose. That's a Duke-Carolina game. And I love it, guys. I think, you know, we just got to the point we got complacent and we felt like it was going to be as easy as it was. What he's talking about with the Duke-Carolina game, the first one at Cameron, he's absolutely right. I was sitting there courtside and there was no question who wanted that basketball game more. It was the Duke guys. They were the ones winning every loose ball and they won the boards that night. They won the game. They won. It was clear who wanted to win that game more. It wasn't North Carolina. And what he's noting with the NIL, the quality of basketball, he said, especially in my line of work now, Antoine's done a lot of scouting since his playing days have ended. So what he's talking about is how NIL has affected the quality of basketball. He's talking about chemistry. He's speaking about everybody can do the between the legs dribble, but is, you know, can, do you have a feel for the game? It seems like there are fewer guys playing basketball nowadays, or there's less basketball being played. And it's a culture that's not just fostered in college sports with NIL, but maybe even broader, it seeps down from the NBA in the air quote load management era, where guys believe, you know, We'll play the minimum amount of basketball possible in order to still justify getting these massive contracts. And you see guys in college saying, you know what? I have all these commercials to shoot and making money and doing all of this. I'm going to prioritize more of that during the offseason rather than having those open runs that Antoine and Vince Carter are talking about there. He even went on to say they probably do not get to the Final Four that next year if it wasn't for those open runs, if there was NIL and they were able to capitalize the way that these guys have. And after hearing them, WD, you're a Carolina fan. I'd love to know if you had this reaction. First thing I thought was, it's good that we're seeing all these transfers now. It's good that we're seeing new blood. It's good that four guys are in the portal. Let's hope a fifth for Carolina's sake and Caleb Love enters the portal too. Carolina needs a reset in mentality if what Antoine Jameson and Vince Carter are saying is true, if what they're saying as members of the Carolina family and prominent members of the Carolina family is true, how did you take it? I mean, it definitely looked like they were just trying to flip on a light switch. Like, you know how back when LeBron was with the Heat and the Cavs, it was just like, yep, he's going to the finals every year. Yeah. And they just I feel like it was some of that effect, only they're not LeBron. And you got to win six in a row right. in order to get there or just make the tournament altogether. 
Yeah, I, I do feel like the heels maybe towards the end of the season started to kind of recognize like this didn't this didn't go the way we thought it could go. Yeah, I think you started to see some of that with Armando and a lot of the guys like that. So, well, I'll give Armando credit. Armando, he seemed like he cared. RJ seemed like he cared. Yes. I can't say that about anybody else on that team. So that's why I feel like I'm happy that those two are back. I could not care less if anybody else returns. Like, it won't move the needle that much for me if any other player were to enter the transfer portal. But we now know, like, with some level of certainty, that contentment was the root of North Carolina's demise this past season. We have... Our final four set, good for Miami getting to the final four, continuing this run for the ACC. Andrea Adelson had that story with quotes from Jim Phillips and will join us in just a few minutes to talk about that. They play UConn in the final four. The game yesterday, what a game against Texas, how they rallied from 13 down in order to win with Norchado Mir in foul trouble. The other game, Creighton-San Diego State, that was one of those games, WD, that were so bad, it was so bad, it was good. Like, the lack of scoring, it became comical. I think Creighton ended up scoring 23 points in the second half. And then I made a joke last night when the foul was called at the end. Hey, what's Lee Cassell doing? Because <laughs> he was the referee that called the foul and then took it back in the Virginia Duke game. And then I quickly realized that's Lee Cassell that made the foul call. Same dude from the Virginia Duke game that called the foul in this spot. It seems, he, it seems he learned his lesson. Hey, let's not change a foul call that you called on the floor. Let's not do that. So that way, the NCAA is not having to put out statements saying, consider this matter closed. Can't wait to watch San Diego State FAU. That's not sarcasm. I really can't wait. The Drive with Josh Graham, only on WSJS. Very interested in the backstory of what we've been talking about. This story that ESPN's Andrea Adelson pinned over the weekend. Or I guess nothing's really pinned anymore. It's typed. It's put online. You get what I'm saying. Jim Phillips, ACC to meet about changing men's hoops narrative. It's something we saw from over the weekend. And joining us from Greenville, South Carolina, where they're still an NCAA Elite Eight game to be played a little bit later on tonight. It is Andrea Adelson joining us on WSJS. So, interested in the backstory here. This came up on Saturday, your story. How did the conversation take place with you and the commissioner? Well, thanks for having me, Josh. Uh, I'm here in Greenville, obviously. And, uh, Miami women had just won their Sweet 16 game, and the men had just won their Sweet 16 game, and Jim Phillips was in Greenville to watch Notre Dame play uh, in their Sweet 16 game uh, against Maryland, and I saw him on the court, and I was uh, assigned to do a story on Miami, basically making it into the Elite Eight with both their men's and women's teams, and that was the premise of my entry with Jim Phillips, you know, the pride, the ACC feels, in having two teams make it. And then, of course, the follow-up to that naturally is, well, how much more pride is it that this has happened again for the men considering the number of bids for a second year in a row? 
And that kind of opened the door for him to say what he said about the ACC needing to do a better job, be more proactive uh, about changing the narrative about this conference. Because, as you know, this has been a great frustration, not just for Jim Phillips and the basketball coaches, but for anybody who watches the ACC in terms of the fact that they've only had five bids each the last two years, and yet they've still seen teams advance to the Final Four. And I got several texts after that story posted saying, well, it's about time that the ACC is going to do something to address this. And, oh, by the way, maybe they should have done this last year because if they had done it last year, perhaps it changes what happened this year. Nonetheless, uh, folks are excited that the ACC is going to sit down and meet about this because very clearly there is some sort of breakdown in communication with that selection committee when they're looking at the metrics, the numbers, the net, the eye test, whatever you want to call it, and how many teams they believe the ACC deserves to get into a tournament. And uh, obviously Jim Phillips and, and the league wants to change that. Yes, this is something I said on this show a month ago, and I was pretty forceful about it, and it's something that coaches had communicated to me, a lot of them, head coaches, assistant coaches, that – we need somebody who's going to be an advocate for us in an aggressive public way. Jeff Capel saying it should be the ACC Network's responsibility. Well, why not the commissioner? And I do think it's val there's value to doing this in a public way. Like Greg Sankey, he was public when Texas A&M got left out last year. And guess what? The SEC got more bids the following season. And we talk about the value of campaigning in the Heisman context with Sam Hartman in the fall. I think there's value to doing this publicly. It's something we talked about with Jim Phillips in Greensboro at the ACC tournament a few weeks ago, and he was telling us about all the things he was doing privately. What, what do you think the value is now of him going publicly, talking to you about his displeasure with what's happened in terms of the bids and what he would like to see moving forward? Yeah, I think this is, I don't want to say throwing down the gauntlet because that sounds very drastic, but I do hope that this signals a, a change in the way the ACC has approached not just basketball, but football as well in terms of trying to be out there more aggressively uh, discussing the merits of the teams within the conference. Because as you mentioned, we've seen Greg Sankey do this in multiple sports. We saw... Nick Saban go out there and campaign for his team with two losses uh, last year in the college football playoff, right? And to me, it's always felt like the ACC has just been a little bit more passive than they should be when we're talking about playoff and or tournament bids on the line. And so maybe this is a lesson learned after going through this now for a second straight season on the basketball side. And as much as the ACC wants to be a football conference, we all know how important basketball is to obviously the history and the tradition in the ACC and only get five bids in for two years in a row. I mean, this is a low point for the ACC when it comes to overall number of bids, despite having expanded conference. So I do think that this is probably something where those inside the league feel this cannot stand and we can't just take a back seat and let other people tell the narrative for us. We need to do a better job of selling that narrative for ourselves because people can sit here and say, well, yeah, it was a down year and they beat each other up. But the fact remains, the ACC has been terrific in the postseason these last two years. 
And shouldn't that count for something? Shouldn't that matter? Shouldn't that be held to a standard that maybe non-conference games should not be held to? And his biggest thing, honestly, is the net. And he mentioned, why are they not looking more at the way teams are playing? Why are they not looking more at the eye test? Instead, they're relying on this net metric that ends up having Pitt have to go to a first four game uh, and win that instead of just making the tournament. I think they should have made it based on their merit alone, and obviously Clemson should have as well. I, I don't know that I agree that North Carolina should have made it the way that Jim Phillips thinks, but nonetheless, this, this conference should have had at least six bids, and I just felt like it's a wake-up call, and now that they can use once again the tournament performance as a feather in their cap, they have to figure out different ways to be able to promote the conference so that the narrative changes. Andrea Adelson joining us from ESPN. Reader story with quotes from Jim Phillips from over the weekend. You know the Canes about as well as anybody, so I'm sure you saw John Swafford's big picture from 20 years ago that it would be <laughs> the Canes in basketball that are saving the conference and holding down the fort. But big picture speaking, Andrea, how will Miami's run given the way they built their roster last summer, change the way ACC teams approach this offseason? Well, I mean, we already heard what Jim Beheim said a few months ago about that, right? And when you just look at the impact NIL alone has made on that basketball roster with bringing in Nigel Pack and the job that he's done and their NIL mega booster, John Ruiz, um, making sure that the rest of the team was taken care of, that obviously had a direct result on Miami going from Elite Eight to Final Four because Nigel Pack was not on this roster uh, a year ago. The vast majority of the guys were, but not him, and he's obviously been a huge difference maker. And, and I think that when you just look at the effect of the portal and NIL, and you can say this on the women's side as well, For sure. because Miami also had – several key impact transfers, the Cavender twins, right, who got NIL deals as well that have helped them, that I think it's probably going to be easier than ever. And I hesitate to use the word easy because it's never easy to win. It's never easy to build a roster. But based on the comments I've heard, at least from basketball coaches over the last week in covering Sweet 16 and Elite Eight, you can remake your roster a whole lot faster now in this transfer portal NIL era than you've ever been able to do before. And I think Miami is certainly an, is an example of that. Um, and LSU on the women's side is certainly uh, an example of that in getting to the final four. So I do think that uh, it'll have an impact, but I also don't necessarily know that coaches need to look at Miami and say, wow, look at the effect of the portal and NIL. I think coaches are probably already there already. And it's just a matter of how do we do this ourselves? How do we make sure that we're taking best advantage of what is available to us with, with the portal and NIL now? One more thing for Andrea Adelson. Since you cover college football so closely and the Carolina Panthers have the number one pick, do you have a preference between Bryce Young at Alabama and C.J. Stroud at Ohio State? Well, you, oh, I thought you were going to say Anthony Richardson. Is, is oh, Anthony Richardson please. not even in the conversation? No. You, uh, see, this is the difference between pro guy, pro pro scout, or pro <laughs> reporter, and people that actually watch college football like you and I. He lost to Vanderbilt, Andrea. He lost to uh -huh. Vanderbilt. 
If you lose to yeah. Vanderbilt, I don't want to hear anything about you being the number one pick in the draft, especially if you only played one year. So really, I'm limiting it to those two guys. Okay, that's fine, but pro scouts are definitely considering him as a number one pick. I think we can, whether he deserves it or not, because of all of his physical tools, I think he's going to get consideration. Now, if we're just going between Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud, yeah. I don't even know how this is a question. It should be Bryce Young. I don't care what his size is. Uh, to me, he has been the most outstanding quarterback in college football for two years straight. And I know Caleb Williams won the Heisman Trophy last year, but I thought Bryce Young had an even better year last year than the year he won the Heisman because he didn't have the talent around him that he did in 2021. He is accurate. He's smart. He knows what he's doing with the football. Yeah, he might not be 6'4". He might not be able to run like C.J. Stroud. But to me, he's a guy that I want to build my football team around because he's got that intangible it factor. He knows what to do to win games. He knows how to make players around him better. Uh, and so I don't think this should be a question. I think it should be Bryce Young all the way. You're the best, Andrea. Great work over the weekend. Best of luck in Greenville. And hopefully I'll see you again sometime soon. That'd be great, Josh. Thanks for having me. It's The Drive with Josh Graham, WSJS. So the big news that we have is that Caleb Love has officially entered the transfer portal. But what does that mean for North Carolina moving forward? To make the show a lot smarter than it currently is, Brian Geisinger joins us, our longtime friend, our resident hoop nerd. What interests you about how Caleb's transfer could impact R.J. Davis's role, who we know is coming back, and what kind of guard do you think Hubert should look to pair R.J. with out of the portal? Yeah, I don't think it changes R.J.'s role um, all that much, to be totally honest with you. Like, he really has, um, over the last two seasons underneath Hubert Davis, like, taken on the role as primary ball handler. And they kind of moved Caleb Love to more of this uh, you know, off ball attacking guard. And I mean, Love got plenty of, of, of on ball looks and certainly he was a high volume isolation and pick and roll score. And they used him in a lot more uh, dribble handoff sets uh, the last couple of years. But I think for Davis, like it stays the same. Like he's a master of the offense there. He can really, really shoot. He does a nice job pushing in secondary situations. Like he's just a good, good player. Um, and because he can shoot and because he can handle, you can fit a lot of different types of guys around him. Um, my thoughts, however, would be as far as like the best guy, the optimal guys to put with uh, someone like RJ Davis, the, mo the most obvious place to start is someone who can really, really shoot off the catch, which I think love uh, at times showed the ability to shoot coming off screens or on spot up looks, but sort of maybe a more, a uh, reliable movement shooter type or, and I think this is something that UNC really missed this season, especially um, is also having, you know, at that, at the, the, the wing spot, you know, the two, the three, like whatever you want to call it, um, having a, like a larger ball handler that can get into the paint because as good as RJ is, and he's terrific, he's also a, you know, a smaller guard. So I think having someone who can slash, 
uh, efficiently with more size uh, and finish at the rim would be huge because with Davis and Love, you never had I – mean, Love was a subpar rim finisher over three seasons. Davis is okay. He's just limited. So, you know, if you, can you find that? Do you need two guys to find that? Um, and I do think someone like Seth Trimble could be able to, to help in terms of, like, the guard finishing. But, again, having someone on the wing with some size who can self-create and or uh, someone on the wing with some size that can shoot would be big to put with uh, Davis and uh, Baycott. Bigger guard, huh? Maybe like a guy 6'5". Who's a guy like that? Like Tyrese Proctor, 6'5", <laughs> who's pretty big and also in the news. He announced he's returning to Durham for a second year. Given what you know about what the NBA values and really the five five-star players who are set to come into Durham next year... <laughs> Who do you think stays? Who do you think goes out of Jeremy Roach and the remaining four Duke freshmen? It's really hard. I mean, to be clear, like I would be speculating on on all of these. Sure. And I, I don't know. And I think it's a anyone who doesn't have like inside info but tells you they know what the Duke guys are doing, like they're just lying to you. <laughs> you know, like so with that, with that disclaimer aside, one it's huge for Tyrese Proctor to come back. Like, let's just, let's just knock that out of the park to begin with. He was excellent. Uh, the back half of this season. Um, I really, really like Proctor as a prospect before he even got to Duke from what I saw him playing uh, in FIBA competition with uh, team Australia. Uh, last really summer. impressed with him defensively watching him up close at Cameron to jump right in. Yeah. He doesn't, you know, it's one of those guys. He doesn't get a ton of steals. So I'll be kind of curious to see if he can like up the steal rate a little bit next season, but just, he is so good at get, using his size and his length to get over screens and to be solid. And uh, John Shire told me after uh, you know one of their one of their wins late in the season, like he is someone that studies up for those big time assignments, whether it's guarding Terquavion Smith and navigating pick and roll, or it's Hunter Couture and Virginia Tech and navigating all of the off ball screening actions that Virginia Tech wants to do. Um, if I were to guess on the rest of the you know the Duke guys, like. You know, I'm, I'm not sure what happens with Roach, but there's just with Proctor coming back, there's so many guys at, in the guard room now with uh, with Caleb Foster and Jared McCain coming in uh, as five-star freshmen. Like, there's always a place at Duke for Jeremy Roach if he wants it, right? Like, he's the captain. The guy's, like, putting – he's put together a pretty impressive, like, career resume over three seasons, a Final Four, an ACC title. Like, he's had a great – he's had a really, really good career – He's also not like a real NBA prospect. He's not quite an amazing shooter. He's quick, but not like an, an insane athlete. And he's never like been a great rim finisher despite some of his craftiness. So like, you know, if he just decides like it's time for him to, to move on or whatever, I, I get that. But obviously Roach, if he wanted to come back, there's a spot for him there. And because of NIL, he could make a lot of money playing at Duke. It just seems like he's probably getting – it does seem like this probably indicates that it's that this is it for Roach. Um, I do think Mark Mitchell will be back, which is exciting. Like he, he had a really nice freshman season. He's come online as like a team defender with some of those backline rim protection flashes. He doesn't need the ball to have an impact on offense. He cuts really well. He hits the offensive glass. He can slash some too. I do think Derek Lively, uh, again, defensive star, anchor at center, um, the rim protector, the scheme versatility guarding pick and roll. Like, I think he's gone. I think Derek Whitehead is probably gone too. Is that um, also it, part of like how the draft works at this point where after you get past the lottery, 
given some of the variants. You want somebody who has a specific skill set you know is going to translate and lively is the type of guy you feel pretty confident will at worst be part of your rotation still? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it depends team by team. I still think there are teams that drafting later in the in the first round that think like they still want to take swings. Um, if anything, they feel maybe like more empowered to like bet on someone with creation upside um you know late in the first round so like we'll see like th- this that would be the pitch for like someone like Jaquavion Smith right that's probably being projected as a late first round pick and you know at, at times had some struggles this year uh we've talked about that but um some team might think well we can get a guy that can score 18 points per game in the NBA and we can get him at pick 20 you know what I mean yeah. but like but there's also a, a percent chance that like this doesn't work but I think Filipowski is the one that I'm not sure about because He's awesome. Like he's so good. Um, you saw him from basically start to finish the season, just like despite drawing incredible attention from opposing defenses, just like his shooting touch, his bullying nature, the way he can handle the ball, his passing, uh, his ability to play through contact. Like again, again, there's a lot of stuff to like there. So like, does a guy like Filipowski want to go? I mean, my guess is he's probably a top 18, top 20 type prospect, like, you know, mid to late first round, or he could also come back and, and play again at Duke, be the ACC player of the year, and maybe be one of the headliners for what's shaping up to be like potentially a really strong class of like returning soft, like guys that are going to be sophomores next season uh, leading into the 2024 draft. And Filipowski could obviously uh, get a bag by being the face of Duke, the face of the ACC, the face of, you know, college basketball. So um, and he would pair very nicely, obviously, with Proctor, which we saw this season. Let's knock out out precise the guys with our guy, Brian Geisinger. And I'll try to do it quickly so that way I can ask you a nerdy basketball question that I've been wanting to ask you for the last two or three weeks. So let's do this. <laughs> Brian Geisinger is a basketball genius. Josh Graham uh, is not. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm big, you're little. I'm right, you're wrong. Listen as Brian launches half-court shots and Josh, well, double dribbles all over himself. And there's nothing you can do about it. Get off the bench and try to out-precise the guys. Admittedly, I've only been following the NBA with box scores the last couple of weeks <laughs> haven't been watching many of the games because of yeah. March Madness so we'll see how this goes for us if you're unfamiliar WD has pulled some stats usually it's just a chance for BG to flex on them that's that's the only reason we do and this. for me not to look great <laughs> it's the radio version of the clown meme that I use when I'm wrong about exactly things. Uh, what do we got so the Phoenix Suns are currently fourth in the West is that right Kevin Durant is there now but he's also battling an ankle injury right now. How many games has he actually played for the Suns so far? Oh, uh, I know this one. It's uh, it's three games. I have three written down. I wrote yeah. it down on this piece of paper. We oh, all we, we all win. It's three. Ah! Undefeated. <laughs> three three and zero. Oh. They looked really good, and then uh, yeah, I mean Kevin Durant slips on a banana peel during. Uh, warm-ups. It's unbelievable. But yeah, three games. One of those three were against the Charlotte Hornets. I watched that game. Mm. What's the next one? The Mavericks, not so great lately. Mm-mm. They're only outside Lost looking Lost the Hornets in. twice. They, they did. Um, <sighs> Kyrie over there now. Yeah. How many points per game less is Kyrie averaging on the Mavericks than he was oh. the Nets this year? He's in a bad shooting slump, too. He's been dealing with an injury, but, man, he was ice cold against the Hornets uh, in two really embarrassing losses uh, for the Mavs. Um, 
I'll say you said how many more or less? How, how many points per game? It's it's less than less. when he was on the net. Ooh, okay. Let's go. Let's go point five. Oh man, I went way too big. I went seven. I think it's drastic. Point one. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's BG. You're not gonna get one past him that way. All right. Let's see if I can at least get a push, like Charlotte FC yeah. over the weekend. See if I can get at least get a tie, get a result. LeBron returned last night against the Bulls, had 19 points. LeBron James of feet doctors. Yeah, foot doctor and all that <laughs> stuff. He's played 48 <laughs> games this year. In year 20, how many points per game is the GOAT averaging this year? Oh, boy. <laughs> if only you saw the Michael Jordan of, of foot doctors, he would have been back sooner. Second time in his career he's come off the bench, by the way. Um, just crazy. Um, I'll say 28 per game for the GOAT. I've got 24. 29.3. Right. That's 20. insane. Bob. It is. That's it is insane. Crazy. That's it insane. Is. All right. I, now for the nerdy basketball question <laughs> I wanted to ask you. Uh, in talking to – what's great about the NCAA tournament is – you, you get access to guys and you can kind of have casual conversations with coaches and players. And the pick guys were telling us their theory on why the ACC has a lot of success in March. And it's the variation of style that you see from team to team in the conference. Syracuse with their zone, Duke with their length, Miami, how small they are. And the Big Ten just doesn't have that. They have one pitch, one, one coach or, yeah, it was a coach for Pittsburgh. Since they were the only team I saw, ACC team I saw in Greensboro, uh, told me that yeah, you know the Big Ten has one pitch, and that's why they when teams figure it out, it's really tough for them to advance far in the tournament. As somebody who watches everybody, it feels like do you buy into that notion that the ACC better prepares its teams for runs in March? I. I feel weird making any sort of conclusions off of you know essentially one game you know, playoffs, you know, like it's just so noisy, especially within this like very relatively small window of like people thinking the ACC is not good during the regular season and then outperforming those expectations once the NCAA tournament rolls around. I also think it's like a little reductive to say that there's only like one style of play in the Big Ten. Like offensively, I can think of several teams that do stuff differently, like Purdue's offense with Zach Eadie's you know, is, is different than what Penn state was doing this season. But as far as the ACC goes, like, yeah, I do think there has been the last couple of years, like a lot of differentiation among style of plays. Like you mentioned the Syracuse zone. How about all the weird stuff? Josh Pastner, your boy, Josh, Josh Pastner did <laughs> at Georgia tech. Um, he still you know, owes he me a pizza, by the way, when he, when he wasn't, you know, uh, busy, uh, condemning mellow mushroom, um, you know, his defense is, they would run triangle and two, one, three, one matchup zone. You had teams like Clemson and Georgia Tech that would run offense through the high post. You have a team like NC State that switches one through four. You have Florida State, which switches one through five on basically every exchange. You have a team like UNC that's drop and no middle. Um, you have Duke, which has done basically everything the last two seasons defensively with Mark Williams and Derek Lively. So, yeah, I I, I, I buy that a little bit, but I, but I would sort of like downplay a, some – that like the big 10 has only one pitch. Like there's a lot of good teams in that conference too. Uh, we can, we, we don't have to like uh, bash the big 10 while also saying that like the ACC has probably been underrated the last two seasons. You can't emphasize enough the point though about 
the measurement of March, winning six in a row. And it's almost just fitting the way that it ended for Virginia. A lot of people taking shots at Tony Bennett. Oh, we can't win in March. And it's a miracle, dumb, bonehead, Kihei Clark pass that led to Furman hitting the game-winning shot. I don't think Tony Bennett is worse or better as a coach because Kihei made that pass. Similarly, I don't think Kihei, I don't think Tony Bennett is any better or worse of a coach because Kihei Clark had the miracle pass to Mamadi yeah. Diakite in 2019 yeah. that allowed them to get there. So I think if if there's any better example about how small the measurement is in March, it's yeah. those Kihei Clark plays. And just real quickly, like the, everything gets lost because in that Furman upset uh, because of the Clark pass. But like one, Furman has an NBA player in Jalen Sloss. And in like the thing that happened the last four minutes of that game, if you really do kind of like want to like uh, knock Tony Bennett or UVA this season, it's like Furman threw out that one three one zone mm-hmm. at them. Mm-hmm. And Virginia just for, like they were going to win that game like relatively comfortably. And they just froze up. That's And then they missed some free throws too. But like, it was it was the inability of the zone offense, and they probably missed maybe missed Ben Vanderplas in that, and they probably should have played Ryan Dunn more at times this season too. But uh, yeah, Tony Bennett is still also an insanely good basketball coach, uh, and uh, yeah, the NCAA tournament's not always the best measuring stick uh, for determining overall like aptitude of a of a job. Caden Cedric was really good in that game. North Carolina native who just entered the portal. I know a school that rhymes with Schmake Schmorris that would be very interested <laughs> in a guy. He would be he would be awesome in Wake's system. Yeah, that would be, be great if that were to happen. BG, it's good to see you, man. And uh thanks for doing this. Yeah, anytime guys.